In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. Our gospel lesson this noontime is from John, the fifth chapter, beginning at the first verse. After this, there was a festival of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, there was a pool called in Hebrew Bethesda, which had five porticos. In these lay many invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the waters are stirred up, and while I'm making my way, someone else steps down ahead of me. Jesus said to him, Stand up. Take up your mat and walk. At once the man was made well, and he took up his mat and began to walk. Now that day was a Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been cured, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your mat. But he answered them, The man who made me well said to me, Take up your mat and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said this to you? Take up your mat and walk. Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had disappeared into the crowd that was there. Later Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Do not sin any more, so that nothing worse may befall you. In verse 25, very truly I tell you, the hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. I'm deeply honored and grateful to have this opportunity to speak with you and be part of this great Lenten series that has been going now for 104 years. Uh, Grateful, too, for the counsel and friendship of Frank Limehouse and the wonderful ministry of Cathedral Church of the Advent. We both are on Richard Arrington Boulevard. We're just a little further south. But together we serve the living Christ. We also, too, have been on the same radio station for many years together, you at 9 o'clock and we at 11, serving Christ together. It is an honor to be with you. Would you pray with me? Let the good news come now, mighty and merciful God. Speak to us at our point of need, your word of healing and your word of hope. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts Be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Wendell Berry, the famed Kentucky poet and essayist, farmer whom a number of us heard just a few weeks ago speaking out at Sanford University, has a wonderful book called Life is a Miracle, in which he gives a creative interpretation to a scene from Shakespeare's King Lear. 
that I think is reflective of something Jesus says in this passage today. And I take this piece from Shakespeare as a bit of our launching pad for the next two days as we're going to be looking at two of the great healing miracles in John's Gospel. In that Shakespeare scene, old despairing Gloucester is downcast and despairing and on the point of wanting to take his own life. His son Edgar comes to him and tries to prevent his father from doing so. He does not want his father to give up on life. And at his father's request, Edgar, now come disguised as a stranger, leads his father to the edge of a cliff, supposedly, as his father requests. Only he's not really at the edge of a cliff. And old Gloucester stands there and bids good riddance to the world, blesses his son Edgar, and then, according to the stage directions, falls forward and swoons. Actually, he only falls a few feet. When he regains consciousness, he thinks he has survived a great fall off a cliff. And again, son Edgar passes by, this time uh, posing as yet another stranger. And seeing him says to the man who is his father, Thy life's a miracle. Speak yet again. That line, speak yet again, calls Gloucester back to life, as Barry says in his essay, into the properly subordinated human life of grief and joy, where change and redemption are possible. Wendell Berry gets at a truth that could, I think, have come from the lips of Jesus in this gospel. When Wendell Berry writes, to treat life as less than a miracle is to give up on it. It is the miracle of life, your life and mine, held in the keeping of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that that I, I want us to focus on for a few minutes over these days, while everyone else is at the beach. This gospel is set at a pool for the needy, the sick, the blind, the poor, the lame. The pool of Bethesda is one of the most authentic archaeological sites in Jerusalem, set near the Crusader Church of St. Anne. In a garden outside the church, they have dug down and found these ancient pools, which, just as John's Gospel said, contain five porticos. And alongside those pools, in Jesus' day, the invalids would come, would be carried, and would lay there hoping against hope to be the first into the waters. When they bubbled up, when they stirred, there was an ancient legend that said that the first into the water upon its stirring would be healed. They they thought this was a divine miracle. Actually, the more natural explanation seems to be there were hot springs that bubbled up occasionally, causing the stirring of the waters. As John records it, Jesus has traveled in one verse from the end of chapter 4, up at, in Galilee, 
in Cana, where he has healed an official son, now to this scene in the south, the great capital city of Jerusalem, where he will perform the third of his healing signs. Three times a year, the Jews were expected to make pilgrimage to Jerusalem, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. This is one of those mandated festivals for which great crowds have swarmed into the city once again. And among the throng lying there is this one poor, pitiful, lame man who, the text tells us, for 38 years has been lying there. It is on him, this one man, among the great throng, that Jesus focuses his attention And ask his question, do you want to be healed? Do you want to get well? It's a question that we ask of ourselves, of our churches, of our community and our world, particularly in this Lenten season. Do we want to get well? Are we willing then to do what is necessary in order to get well? A question is asked, do you want to be healed? Biblically speaking, 38 years was a full generation. It was 38 years that the children of Israel wandered around in the desert having left Egypt. We're told in Deuteronomy 2.14, So we crossed over the Wadi Zered, and the length of time we had, to tra- had traveled from Kadesh Barnea until we crossed the, watery, the Wadi Zered was 38 years. Until the entire generation of the warriors were perished from the camp, as the Lord had sworn concerning them. Well, after such a long time, one would not expect much new or different to take place in their life. The patterns would be pretty firmly set. Not many surprises. And with that would be a sort of sense of resignation, even despair and fatalism. To say that this is my lot, this is my destiny, nothing fresh or new really expected. Once I had an opportunity back in Louisiana to preach the installation sermon for a dear friend who was going into a church which had a rather troubled history. Uh, They had a a knack of uh, fragmenting within themselves and uh, seemed to have a special ability to dispense with pastors every year or two. As I was preparing for that time, I noticed that they were at that point in their 38th year. I had my text. And I did make homiletical hay out of it as I asked them, do you want to get well? Do you really? Are you willing to do what's necessary? Can a new generation arise from among God's people? It's an important question to ask these days in America. And in Alabama, it's been said that life's supreme tragedy is not poor health, lack of wealth or beauty or great gifts, a disappointment in a marriage or having a boring job, grievously hard as these may be. It lies in the fading of our youthful vision. And our greatest sorrow is always the death of that sparkling spirit of wonder we possess as children. That deep joy in the world and in living 
that pure faith and believing heart, that bubbling forth of divine joy within us. In much the same sort of way that Nicodemus questioned Jesus earlier in chapter 3 when he made that nighttime visit and, and Jesus told him he had to be born again, born anew from above. And, and, and Nicodemus tries to turn it into a physiological problem. That's impossible. How can one be enter again into one's mother's womb and be born? In much the same way, this man uh, does not get past Jesus' question. Made well, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the waters are stirred. And I'm making my way and somebody always pushes in ahead of me. Here's one thing you can count on. If you keep doing what you've always done, you keep getting what you've always got. We do that, don't we? We, we keep repeating the same patterns. And we sort of think out there something miraculously different is just going to happen. But it doesn't. Johns Hopkins Medical School Journal documents that even after bypass surgery, half of the smokers do not quit smoking. Even after a heart attack, only about a third of those who smoke stop. We, we, we don't change our pattern. We stay in the same rut. We fear going in a new direction. We're unwilling to try a new medicine. Well, apply that to our civil, religious, and educational institutions. And you know it's true. The man had been in his routine day after boring day after boring day for 38 years. Healing? How preposterous. There is a disease Presbyterians have. It's called presbyopia. It's a real eye disease. Disease of the eye. You cannot see what is right in front of you. And I know that's not a disease Episcopalians have. The man cannot see what is right in front of him. He feels that he is fated to live out his day as he has. A question is asked. Do you want to get well? And then a command is given. Stand up. Take up your mat and walk. Jesus does not engage the man in argument over what has been. He utters a command about what the man is to do now. And amazingly, the man does it. At the word of Jesus, he stands and he takes up that mat and he begins to walk. Obeying Jesus' word then. And there and everything changes. He doesn't have full or even partial knowledge at this point of who Jesus really is, his, his full deity and humanity, his full Christology, that all comes later. He only hears the word of this captivating, commanding individual and responds. Responds in faith. Acts in trust in a way that he cannot fully explain. Like the letter to the Hebrews says, faith is the Substance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. Faith changes things for us and for our world when we exercise it. Recently, a group at South Highland was studying a book by Harvey Cox, the Harvard theologian, called uh, The Future of Faith. Remember Cox? He, back in the 60s, he wrote a rather... Uh, sensationalized book called The Secular City. And, well, in his 80s, he's still going at it. 
And in, in this book, he is looking at where Christianity is moving in a new century, in an era when we are disestablished from the Constantinian model, getting back, as it were, before Constantine made Christianity the state religion. And Cox notes that Christianity is becoming less a system of belief and more a matter of personal trust in Jesus and a movement of the Spirit. There's hope in that. He notes that the most dramatic growth of Christianity, and, and you know this, is taking place in, South, in the southern continent, uh, in the third world, and particularly among Pentecostals. They tend to be the poorer segments of society and come to a faith that is a, a dramatic turnaround. And they make a clear choice and go in a distinct way from the ways that they have been traveling, the ways of the world, as it were, to the ways of the Lord. Cox notes that this dramatic turning is so powerful for them in part because for the first time in their life, they feel freed up from the system in which they have been fated from their birth. They are freed up and discover that change is possible. Likewise, this invalid. At the command of Jesus, he obeys. Takes Jesus at his word and gets up, rolls up his bedroll and walks. Signifying that he is no longer going to be lying there, waiting for a miracle of the water. Or waiting there to be taken care of by the system. He is going to embrace the rest of God's gift for him for the rest of his life on his now two newly strengthened legs. Jesus knows that part of moving out of our, part of our healing is moving out of our isolation and into community. This man has spent all these years in utter isolation. Not one friend there to help him into the water when it is stirred. He stands on his feet and he is re-entering the community, re-entering the fellowship, being reintegrated into the fellowship of believers, which is a part of our healing. To be healed is to be returned to life, to be reconnected and made whole. That's what Jesus bringing in the kingdom of God is about. Sickness, disease, injustice, oppression. These are not God's intentions. These are not payment individuals find visited upon themselves for their sins. Jesus does not see sick people as responsible for their diseases, nor does he see sickness as part of God's divine intention. Rather, Jesus sees sickness as a kind of structural disarray of the cosmos. And it is to correct this disarray that Jesus undertakes his mission and carries it out all the way to the cross. And so a question is asked. Do you want to get well? A command is given. Get up. Take your mat and walk. And then a conflict is inevitable. It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your mat on the Sabbath. The man who has been lying there predictably 
complacently all these years for the first time stands on his feet, rolls up his mat and begins to take care of himself only to be excoriated by the officials. Sabbath violation. Sabbath Sabbath violation. You're breaking the law by carrying your mat. What irony that here this one who previously could do no work was totally dependent on the system, is now charged with a picky little violation of a rule against carrying his mat on Sabbath when he is for the first time able to care for himself and his possessions. These keepers of the status quo do not yet dare get at the real root of their fear that Jesus is who he's claiming to be. The divine Son of God. Now that will come later. For now the man is being charged with a petty violation by carrying his mat. But the point is, you see, that conflict arises. And it grows in John's Gospel, it grows immensely. Conflict arises in our lives when we decide to follow Jesus. When we take him at his word. And get up and go in his way. The question is, will we trust him? Knowing that to do so will mean some of our other commitments and priorities may be displaced. Some changes may be necessary. The healing Jesus ultimately brings to this man and this world will cost Jesus his life. It will require that he be broken. For only a broken Christ can heal a broken world. And the curse of the cross will become the blessing of salvation for the world. Do you want to be healed? If you've been lying in alongside some pool, stuck in the same old rut for a long time, here's medicine you need to take. First, give God a chance. Let God have space to work in your life. Ask God to show you what you need in prayer. Second, believe that God will hear you and cares. Take a leap of faith. Trust not only that God exists, but that God does in fact hear and care for you. Third, be willing to wait patiently upon God. God's time is not our time. That man had waited for 38 years. The children of Israel wandered in the wilderness for 38 plus 2 years. Some prayers take a long time in being answered. Be patient and wait for God. And fourth, when God speaks to you, gives you a signal uh, like stand up, take up your bed, and walk, then do what God says. Obey. And you probably will not hear God audibly. But God has His ways. He's subtle. He can get His sign across to you if you're open, if you're listening. If you're yearning for God, God will show you His sign as He does in this healing. The third of His signs And the first 
to lead to confrontation. Thy life's a miracle. Speak yet again. Through Jesus, life is a miracle. Our life entwined in his. And he can transform us and all things. God bless you. Amen. May we pray together. Lord God, come and touch us and heal us. We long with restless hearts for the rest you alone can give. So stir within our souls and bodies a faithful, obedient response. And give us grace to endure the toils, the conflict, the suffering, the confrontation, whatever may come. O Christ, we acknowledge you to be our Lord and our God. O Christ, we believe your healing word. O Christ, we confess you alone are our only hope to the end and the beginning. Amen.